We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6 this morning, working our way slowly through the book of Isaiah. Just finished the introductory section, chapters 1 through 5, and now we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 6. We live in a strange age, don't we? Where at quite literally the tips of our fingers, we have access to information on pretty much anything that we want to know. That we can become instantaneous experts. One author's name is Tom Nichols, wrote a book called The Death of Expertise. And in it, he was making the observation that our own age, when you combine rampant individualism, that is that I am not ultimately to submit to or am beholden to any authority outside of myself, individual or institution. And you combine that with the information age, then you have a bunch of autonomous experts. And if everybody's an expert, then nobody's an expert. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. We've phased out the need for doctors because we have WebMD, also known as five steps to how you're going to die today. We don't need to go to a mechanic. We can YouTube it and do it ourselves. We don't need to go to a lawyer. We can get all of the documentation that we need online. We don't need scholars. We don't need researchers. We've got Wikipedia. But if everybody's an expert, then nobody's an expert. But in this age of, of the death of expertise, what you've seen is ultimately the rise of virtue signaling. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this term of virtue signaling. Virtue signaling is essentially the public display or, or commenting of how your own thoughts, convictions, and ideologies are somehow morally superior to those around you. And so, as you can imagine, the advent of social media has given each one of us the opportunity to own our own bully pulpit, that we can stand and, and declare ourselves experts and even morally supreme to those guys over there, whoever those guys may be. We do this in the political realm. We might soapbox on issues related to health and diet. We would soapbox on, on any host of a number of issues. But we are a culture that loves to virtue signal. Virtue signaling thrives where there is no transcendent vision of anything or anybody greater or more holy than us. It is an activity, a culture that emerges when we think that there is nothing outside of us on any given issue that sees it the way that we do, as righteously as we do, that we are, in our own estimation, Holy, holy, holy. But as what we're going to see in Isaiah chapter 6, is that when you are confronted with the transcendent reality of God's holiness, of who He is in Himself, there is no place left for virtue signaling. 
Did you realize that what we need more than anything is not bully pulpits whereby we can exalt ourselves over others, political opponents, or whatever it may be? What we need is grace. We're going to see that in Isaiah's confrontation, traumatic confrontation with the holiness of God. And we are going to see his response both in humility and his response in submitting to God. The big idea of our text this morning is this. God is holy. Humble yourself and submit to him. God is holy. Humble yourself and submit to him. Here in Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to see this big idea flesh itself out in really three points that are clear in the text. Number one, in verses one through four, we're going to see that God is holy. That God is holy. Verses five through eight. It's our second point. Respond appropriately. Respond appropriately. And then finally, in verses nine through 13, our final point, point three, trust his plan. God is holy. Respond appropriately, trust his plan. Let me give you a little context if you haven't been with us, catch you up on where we are. Chapters 1 through 5 are all introductory to the book of Isaiah. Most of what we find there are themes that are going to course throughout the later prophecies in his book. And what we see is that Israel is not what God intends for Israel to be. So the question becomes, at the end of these five chapters, is how is it that Israel will become what God intends her to be? Well, the answer, we find, is going to be in chapter 6. That sinful Israel will become servant Israel when the experience of Isaiah becomes the experience of the nation. That when the nation sees itself against the backdrop of God's holiness and glory... And when the nation has received God's gracious provision for sin, then she can speak for God to a world that is hungry for the very same grace. But chapter 6 also doesn't merely look back to chapters 1 through 5. How is it that sinful Israel will become servant Israel? Chapter 6 also looks forward to chapters 7 through 12. And it's there that we find the fulfillment of this word that was given to Isaiah. We'll see what that word is here in just a few moments. But here we see chapter 6 opening with a little bit of context. Chapter 6, verse 1. It says here, in the year King Uzziah died. We've made mention of King Uzziah a number of times in our series. But what I want to do is I want to go back and have you see where in the Bible King Uzziah is addressed. It's going to give us really important context for our passage This morning. And so keep your finger there on Isaiah 6. We're meditating on this idea of in the year King Uzziah died, and I want you to turn to your left to 2 Chronicles 26. If you have cross references in your Bible, you should be able to see it there 2 Chronicles 26. Uzziah, by and large, was a good king. He came into power when he was only 16 years old. 
So we can dismiss this idea that at least by God's grace, older necessarily means more faithful. He was a faithful king. And we find that one of the reasons that he was faithful there in verse 5 is because he was discipled by a prophet called by God named Zechariah. If you are going to be discipled by a guy who receives direct revelation from God, you should be a pretty fruitful man. And that's exactly what Isaiah Uzziah was. He instructed in verse 5 in the fear of God. And here's the condition. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So in verse 6, he goes out, wages war against the Philistines. Then look at verse 7. It says here that God helped him. And then glancing all the way down at verse 15, you see that? He was marvelously helped. These are bookends to this whole section explaining how it is that God has helped Uzziah. Everything in between is the result of God's grace in helping Uzziah. And we see here that in, in verse 8 that that Israel's fame had spread. There was increased security in verse 9. In verse 10, there was increased wealth in herds and farmers, vine dressers in the hills and fertile lands. Not only that, but military might and power was expanding in verse 11. And he was establishing a deeper and broader and more wise set of leadership in verse 11. We've got commanders. Finally, in verse 15, we see that there's even technology being developed. He made machines invented by skillful men. What you find is a nation that is profiting and prospering by God's hand under the leadership of Uzziah. But verse 16 is kind of the door that turns in Uzziah's life. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. Everything changes in the narrative from here on out. Uzziah figures that he's going pretty good and that he is going to go ahead and take it upon himself. It's not just good enough that I'm a king. I deserve also to be a priest. I've seen so much prosperity in my life by God's grace that it should be that I could have direct access to God apart from how God has prescribed for me to approach him. And so he approaches the altar in order to burn incense there at the end of verse 16. Verses 17 and 18, he is confronted by 81 priests led by Azariah, but he won't even listen to them. In fact, he grew angry there in verse 19. And that anger was just a proof of his rebellious pride. How dare you come against me? How dare you cite God's word and regulations against me? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? Well, there on the other side of God's boundaries is a holy God. And we find that when he became angry, verse 19, leprosy broke out on his forehead. In verse 21, it was the Lord who struck him. Think about the irony in that statement. Verse 7, God helped him. Now in verse 20, the Lord struck him. All based on that condition. As long as he sought the Lord, God would make him prosper. Well, he's no longer seeking the Lord. He is drenched in pride and self-sufficiency. And it says in verse 21 that he was a leper to the day of his death. In fact, it was said in verse 23, the final words mentioned of him when he was buried among the kings is, he is a leper. That was his legacy. It wasn't technology. It wasn't military defeats. His legacy was pride leading 
to destruction. Well, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw something. Go back to Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw something. Or rather, I saw someone. What did he see? I saw the Lord, Adonai, the Sovereign. Sitting upon a throne, a throne that is high and lifted up. We have a scene that is majestic. It's majesty unfolding before Isaiah. And that on this throne is a king, the sovereign Adonai. Whenever you see Lord in lowercase, L-O-R-D, lowercase O-R-D, it's always talking about Adonai, the sovereign, the king. That's different than when you see L-O-R-D all capitalized. That's referring to Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of God. Adonai is his title. He is king. He is the sovereign. And here we see him sitting on a throne that is elevated, high and lifted up. Not only that, but Isaiah sees that the train of his robe is filling the temple. Maybe a better translation of that would be the hem of his garment. The very edges of it are filling the temple. A robe for a king is the symbol of his glory. And here we see that God's glory is unending in length. There is no end to it. Even just the hem, the stitching on the very edge fills the entire temple. All of this, of course, is imagery related to the infinitude, that God is infinite in his majesty. And so we sometimes get a sense of majesty when we stand out in creation, don't we? If you've visited the Redwoods or you've been to the Grand Canyon, you feel very small. If you've been out in West Texas or Crum, same thing. <laughs> and you look out to the sky where there's no light pollution, you see Skies everywhere. When George Stone first moved to Texas, he said the most amazing thing about Texas is how big the sky is. He came from Ohio. He said, I'm amazed at how big the sky is, and it can make you feel very small. There's, it's majestic. But when we talk about the majesty of God, we're not talking about God is to us what redwoods are to us, or what the Grand Canyon is to us, or even what the sky with its bazillion stars are to us. God is something altogether different. He's in a category all to his own. Listen to what A.W. Tozer says. We must not think of God as highest in ascending order of beings starting with a single cell and going on up from the fish to the bird to the animal to man to angel to cherub to God. God is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite. But the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. God is in a league all of his own. He is not a bigger and better version of us. 
He is the only one who is infinite. He is the only one who is unlimited. He is the only one who is immeasurable. He is the greatest, most supreme, most perfect being imaginable. That is what Isaiah saw. And so even as this earthly king lay dead or dying, the heavenly king was holding court. How often do we need to be reminded of this? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the king. In the year that Trump was impeached, I saw the king. In the year that China, through hard tariffs against us, and overtook us in the global economy, I saw the king. Plug in whatever historical situation you would like. The curtain has been pulled back and Isaiah has seen that the sovereign is on his throne. So when you hear somebody say, well, you know, God's on the throne. That may be or come across a little bit, I don't know, pithy or even cheesy. That's Isaiah 6.1. That when the king lay dead in the ground, Isaiah saw that the true king, the eternal king, the heavenly king was on his throne. He was reigning and he is sovereign. And that's exactly what we see pouring forth in the praise of the, of the seraphim. That word seraphim is, is by many thought to be this idea of burning ones, like angels of fire perhaps. And we see that each one of them had six wings and with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet. By covering his face, they covered all of his eyes because even a sinless servant of God couldn't, could not gaze upon his glory. That's how staggering God's glory is. And he covers his feet because in the ancient world, feet was a, one's feet was a, a symbol of, of being unclean. That's why it was so staggering in the ancient world when, when Jesus, the master, washed his disciples' feet. It was a mark of uncleanliness, of Jesus being willing to make himself as unclean as necessary to serve those who belong to him. So they cover his feet. They cover, symbolically speaking, their own uncleanliness. They, they cover their eyes. They can't behold his glory. And one is calling to another, singing back and forth these living flames of pure, nuclear-powered praise, calling to one another, saying this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. John has a similar vision in Revelation chapter 4, or rather Revelation 5. And in it, he says that these seraphim, these creatures, there were myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands, which is just a really elaborate way to say a bazillion gazillion of them. As many of them as the stars of the sky. All singing praises to this glorious God who is infinite in measure, whose glory and greatness cannot be diminished in any way, nor can it be added to. He is holy, holy, holy. And that repetition is not actually repetition. It is emphasis. It's not one plus one plus one. They are singing perfection times perfection times perfection times infinity. It is the highest superlative in the Hebrew language that you can give. 
And it's interesting, as R.C. Sproul notes, that nowhere in the Bible do we see God described as love, 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 or justice, 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 or mercy, 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 grace, grace, grace. We see him described as holy, holy, holy. And what we learn from this is that all that is in God is God. To speak of his grace, to speak of his mercy, to speak of his love, and to speak of his justice is to speak of a holy grace and a holy love and a holy mercy and a holy justice. He is holy, holy, holy. And we see this testified all throughout the history of the saints, all throughout the Bible. So you may remember after in Exodus 15, 11, after after God had redeemed them and brought them out from Egypt, Israel and, and Moses saying, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Holiness was their song. Psalm 29.7, David sings, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. It is majestic. Think of what Isaiah is seeing in Isaiah 6.1. God says of himself later on in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Who am I like that I should be like him? Says the Holy One. Because God is holy, holy, holy. God alone is God. He is incomparable. He is not like us, only bigger, stronger, and nicer. He is in an altogether different category. He is holy. And that holiness we see is pouring forth from Adonai, the sovereign, the king, because the whole earth is going to be full of his glory. Here it speaks not, to the, not only to the omnipresence of his glory, that is his glory being everywhere all at once, but it speaks also to the scope of his sovereignty. The scope of Adonai, the scope of the king's reign. That there is no land, there is no place, there's nothing anywhere and nobody who is untouched by his power, his rule, and his authority. He is holy, 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 and his glory is filling creation. That his, omnipres his glory is omnipresent and is everywhere, and his sovereignty is without limits. This is the song that the seraphim sung over and over and over. And notice in verse 4 that these songs, as they sung to one another, their voices caused the foundations of the threshold to shake. The voice of him who called, speaking about the seraphim, the one calling to the other. And so we need to get out of our mind that these, these angelic servants are chubby little babies. They are thunderous. I don't know how many of you have been to an air show or seen the Blue Angels or had, had a jet come low and you just feel it into the very depths of your being. It's shaking your cup and it's shaking the windows. Kind of like that all-time classic film, Top Gun. Minus the volleyball scene. That's a little bad. But Maverick and Goose, well, really Maverick against Goose, Wants to buzz the tower. And so every time he does, it shakes and the guy spills his coffee all over himself. That's similar to what we're seeing here. That it's thunderous. 
It's like just a couple of nights ago when the thunder is is pounding and rippling through the sky. And some of you have been in thunderstorms such that it shakes the windows in your house. And if you have a young one like we do, then every time thunder does that, they scream and they yell and they, they long for you to come and rescue them. And so we go in and, and anytime there's a thunderstorm, rattling windows, you go in and, and little Eliana is shaking like a leaf, fearful, at how big and powerful and massive and unknown this thunderous shaking is. And just like a three-year-old toddler in a thunderstorm, we see Isaiah responding in the same way in verse 5. He said, Woe is me, for I am lost. Some of your translations say, I'm undone. I'm unraveling. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We see in verse 5 that Isaiah despairs. He says, first of all, woe is me. Never before has the finitude, the finiteness of his existence and the sinfulness of his soul been so exposed. And that leads him to confess that he is a man of unclean lips. That all over the Bible, what we learn is that the lips give expression to the heart, and the heart is the seatbed of all of our humanity. It's who we are. You are what you speak. For out of the heart a man speaks, Jesus says, Luke chapter 6. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. But not only that, he recognizes that he's just like everybody else, that God's holiness is the great equalizer. That Isaiah recognizes that he has no room for virtue signaling. He says, I am not only a man of unclean lips, but I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I am just like them. Now keep in mind, Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah had just pronounced woe upon woe upon Israel. They were, it seemed, irremediably sinful. And now Isaiah turns that mighty woe on himself. I'm in no better shape than them. I am to God no different than the archangel is to God, than the, than the ant or the insect is to God. All relative to God, woe is me, woe is us. But you've got to understand that in this context, coming to a right understanding of who God is as holy, 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 of limitless in the scope of his majesty and of his rule. That woe, in verse 5, Isaiah's woe is the beginning of Isaiah's worship. It's not contrary to worship. It is worship. All true worship begins with a right understanding of God and consequently a right understanding of who we are. Otherwise, we are prone to worship ourselves. And so Isaiah's worship begins with a woe. He sees God and he sees himself in a new light. And then we see God respond to Isaiah, the sinfulness of, of who he is. In verse 6, we see that Isaiah is cleansed. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. And then he had to take it with tongs. It was too hot, even for this burning one. And in verse 7, he touched 
my mouth. It touches Isaiah's mouth, but the text never says that it hurts Isaiah. But what we do see is that it heals Isaiah. It touches my mouth. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. If we're going to do whole Bible theology, that is understanding the Bible in light of the Bible itself, then what we got to understand is this burning coal in verse 7 symbolizes the finished work of Christ. The work of Christ whereby he purifies his people, cleansing them and forgiving them of their sin. That's why it said, Paul to Titus, that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify us. Think red hot coal. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. This is what God did to Isaiah and it was pointing forward to an even greater purification and redemption. Whereby Isaiah's sin along with our own sin would be fully and finally Forgiven and he would be fully and finally counted righteous. You may remember in Romans chapter 3, the question is asked, or the, 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 the issue is posed essentially, well, what about if, if God has made his righteousness known in Christ and on his being set forward publicly as a propitiation for sin on the cross, that is, as a wrath-bearing substitute for sinners, then, then how were all of those prior to Christ saved? And he says that the previous transgressions were, in a sense, overlooked. Not overlooked in the sense that God winked at them. It's that all sin, both in the past, prior to the cross, and after the cross, and at the time of the cross, that all the sins for all of those who would trust in God's promises to find their yes and amen in Christ would have their sins forgiven. For Isaiah to trust God and for God to act in this way is for God to act in part in a way that he will act in full at the cross. And he does so as one who stands outside of time and space, not one who is, you know, clicking his watch and waiting for the time. That for God, it is all instantaneously done just as he had elected and chosen Isaiah for this task and for to be his child from before the foundations of the world. That Isaiah is loved by God with a holy love. His sin is atoned for. His sins are forgiven. And God's great grace to him makes him eager for service. Verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Isaiah gets an ear into this heavenly counsel. The kind of counsel spoken of in plurality that only a triune God can have. Who shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. This is how Isaiah responds. Notice he doesn't go, hey, what does this entail? Where are you going to take me? Is it going to hurt? Is it going to be expensive? He just says, I'll go wherever you want me to go. And I'll do whatever you want me to do. If you are a God that is as holy as that, and you're willing to be as gracious as that to me, you own me, and I will do whatever you want me to do. I will go wherever you want me to go. I will say whatever you tell me to say to whomever you tell me to say it. I will go. And all of this is ultimately fueled by God's grace. It's not out of guilt. It's not out of 
out of a sinful fear, it is rooted and motivated by the fact that God has loved him with a holy love and has gone to great lengths to purify him and forgive him and to make him righteous and to make him his own. Isaiah says, I have no choice but to respond to God in this way. And so here we see in Isaiah 1, 1 through 8, a glorious sequence that the revelation of the Lord's glory leads to Isaiah's awareness of his sinfulness and need. And that leads to God's atoning work for his sin. And that leads to Isaiah responding to God's work and presenting himself for service. I don't know if you were able to pick this up, but that is how we organize our order to service when we gather together on Sundays. If you grab your bulletin, you'd be able to see up at the very top that theological section. That is us seeing and beholding and praising God for who he really is. He is holy, 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 just as we sang. But in light of God's great holiness, we recognize that we are irremediably sinful and there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right and acceptable to this holy, holy, holy God. And so we say and sing with Isaiah, woe is me. And it leads us in a confession just as Mike led us in today. But it doesn't end there. No more than Isaiah chapter 6 ends in verse 5. Because we turn and we find an assurance of pardon of what God on his own initiative, according to his own grace, will do to redeem for himself a people for his glory. And he does so in Christ. And so Matt reads us an assurance of pardon. And we reflect and we sing and we praise God for his great grace to us in Christ. Because in Christ our guilt has been taken away. And our sin has been atoned for. And now we find ourselves in the section of our gathering where we open God's word. Read God's word. And as those who have been totally forgiven and redeemed by the grace of God. Say here I am will do whatever you say. That's how we organize our gatherings. And that's not by accident. It's because we understand that this is what the normal Christian life looks like. This isn't abnormal. Isaiah 6 is normal. To see God in his glory and us in our sinfulness. To realize our need for a savior and of God's provision of such a savior in Christ of our having been united to him and being made righteous, justified, sanctified, glorified, and now in response to that grace, responding in faith to his word by obedience. Just like Isaiah. And so God is holy. And that calls us to respond appropriately. But thirdly and finally, in verses 9 through 13, it also causes us to trust his plan. Because if we are going to be those who come into the surface of God, then in our service, there's going to be all kinds of things that God in his wisdom has chosen to conceal from us. God is good in everything that he has revealed, but we do not and cannot know everything that God knows about himself or anything else. He's given us everything that we need to know to do everything that he would have us do. But God is good not only in all that he reveals, God is good in all that he conceals. And we need to trust his plan. And that's exactly what we're going to see Isaiah having to do in these closing verses. Verse 9. God said, go. And I want you to say to this people, these people being 
Jerusalem and Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, these people that have rebelled against me, over whom you have pronounced six woes. And this is what I want you to say. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of these people dull and their ears heavy. This is God speaking to Isaiah again. Make the heart of these people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Whoa, wait a minute. I thought God was a God of grace and mercy. Why would God not want them to turn and be healed? This, rightfully so, is a troublesome passage. It's challenging because what God is saying is that I want you to go preach what I say and the way that I'm going to use my words spoken by you is not in this case to save everybody, but I'm going to harden these people. These people who have already hardened their hearts to me, I'm going to harden their hearts all the more so that they will not respond to me. Oftentimes, when Isaiah 6 is preached, preachers stop at verse 8. But it's interesting because verses 9 and 10 are the most, it's, it's the most quoted passage from Isaiah in the New Testament. Why? Why was Isaiah, 9 and, Isaiah 6 verses 9 and 10 as confusing and difficult to understand as it may be? Why did the New Testament authors and why did Jesus in his own teaching lean so heavily on these handful of verses? Why was it so important, so significant that they would come back to it over and over and over again some five times? And it's because the early church was exposed. The early church was bitterly opposed in their ministry of the gospel. You may remember when you get the disciples walking with Jesus and they're looking around and there's so few of them. And they're going, well, listen, if you're really the Messiah, if you're really the son of God, if you really are who you say you are, if you really are the object of the gospel that you're preaching, then why are there so few of us? And why are there far more people in the crowd that want to kill you? And why are there far more people in the crowd that want to use you? Why are there so few true believers? Of course, Paul had to wrestle with the same thing, the Apostle Paul. And all of them are going, why is there such a response to good news? Why are these people hearing good news and treating it as bad news? And they would come back to Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, for the explanation of why that is. Because in the preaching of the gospel, God has hardened their hearts. We see it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus explains in each one of those synoptic gospels that this is how parables work. They go, wait a minute, why are you speaking to us in parables? He goes, let me explain how parables work. And he quotes Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. It's only to you that I'm making known the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but it's hidden to everyone else. Acts 28, Paul at the very end of the book of Acts explains God's plan that there has been a hardening 
of Israel. Because how else is the gospel to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the outer ends of the earth? He says the way that God in his providence is causing the gospel to go to the outer ends of the earth is by the hardening of people here. They're rejecting the gospel. The gospel's going out. It's the means whereby God is accomplishing the ends of filling the earth with his glory. And Paul in Acts 28 quotes Isaiah 6, 9 and 10 as an explanation for how God is going to make the gospel go global. John chapter 12 explains why religious leaders were rejecting Jesus the way that they were. Put your finger there in I. In Isaiah, and I want you to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. John 12. Jesus, in verses 27 to 36, had just finished predicting both his death and his resurrection, or rather his death. How it's going to come about. And it says in verse 36 that when he said these things, that is, preaching the good news of what he would accomplish by being betrayed and murdered on a cross, he departed and he hid himself. And even though he had done many signs before them, they did not believe in him. Jews looked for signs. Greeks looked for wisdom. But Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. But the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But notice this, verse 38, so that they didn't believe in him. Why? Here's the reason, verse 38, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 1 is quoted here. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, verse 39, keeping in mind the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah being fulfilled, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, Isaiah 6, 9 and 10, he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. John is making sense of the rejection of Jesus through the lens of Isaiah 6 and 9. How is it that God and his sovereignty drove the Jews to drive the Romans to drive the nails into Christ? The answer to the riddle is Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. All of a sudden, weird, confusing, seemingly bad news becomes really good news. Because this is how God is accomplishing the end of filling the earth with his glory and of gathering for himself a people. But notice one other thing in John 12, verse 41. Isaiah said these things, these passages just quoted, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who is the his in the him? It's Jesus. John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says that when Isaiah was confronted with the holy, holy, holiness of God, it was Jesus that he saw. It was Jesus that he preached. It was Jesus that was rejected, just as Jesus was when he came and preached the good news concerning himself, and just as 
Paul and Peter and the apostles' message was when they preached the good news concerning Jesus, and just as it is today as God continues to work according to his sovereign plan to fill the earth with his glory. Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him, of Jesus. That's amazing. Go back to Isaiah 6. So what we want to observe then, here in verses 9 and 10, is what we say often in our church, that God's word works. But Isaiah 9 and 10 confronts us in that it may not always work the way that we think it should or the way that we anticipate that it will. But every single time God's word is preached, something happens, either a softening or a hardening toward God by those who hear. Those who walk away closer to God or further away from God. But nobody, according to the Bible, can hear God's word proclaimed and remain exactly as they were before they heard it. God's word is always at work doing God's work in the world. Saving or hardening. For God's purposes and God's glory. And so we need this category built into us. Because it's through the right preaching and the proclamation of the word that God not only saves, but he brings judgment against those who have hardened their hearts against them. This is a hard truth to accept. Because it rubs the cat the wrong way. In terms of how we love to think about God as loving and holy. But God's love is never contradictory to his holiness. So how do we begin thinking about hard passages like this? Number one, when we get to hard passages like this that are hard to understand, we need to be convinced that they are never contrary to God's character. And we need to be convinced, secondly, that it's never arbitrary to God's plan. It's never arbitrary to God's character that the God who hardens in verses 9 and 10, and as we'll see in Isaiah 7 through 12, that the God who hardens is king. And he is free to do whatever he pleases. See also Romans 9. But this king who does whatever he pleases is also holy, holy, holy. And that means that nothing can proceed from God but that which is morally excellent. Holiness marks everything that he does, including the hardening of hearers in the preaching of the gospel. He is morally pure and no accusation can ever be brought against him by man because he is holy, holy, holy. And just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that there's not an answer because God knows himself and he knows all things in a way that we cannot possibly comprehend. So it's never contrary to God's character. And secondly, it's never arbitrary to God's plan. That's what we see in verses 11 through the end of the chapter. Isaiah says, how long, O Lord, just like the psalmist. And underneath that is not a complaining spirit, but a faith-filled spirit. Isaiah knows that I don't have the answer, but I know the God who does have the answer to my question. And he is free to tell me or not to tell me. How long, O Lord? And God said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant. Houses without people, land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. The forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and through a tenth remain in it. It's going to be devastating. 
Only 10% are going to respond favorably to your message. It will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled and the holy seed is his stump. We see, first of all, God's judgment. That the preaching of God's word is going to further harden the already hard hearts of Israel. And because they refuse to listen to God, as we see there in verse 13... We see in verse 13 that God is essentially committed to spiritual deforestation. God is going to clear the ground for new growth. And all that's going to be left at the end is a stump. But through judgment is God's grace. And this is a theme that thumps through the book of Isaiah, just like Nate Wallace was thumping on the cajon this morning. Boom, boom, boom. Through judgment is grace. And that's exactly what we see here. It's going to be the same message I'm going to preach for the next 66 weeks until we get to the end of the chapter, until it's ingrained deeply in us, because this is the whole theme of Isaiah. That on the tail end of God's judgment, we see his grace. That out of this stump will be a holy seed, and that holy seed will produce a single branch. You remember what we, dis- what we studied at the end of Isaiah chapter 4? Glance back at that. Tell me if you see a key word, Isaiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. In that day, the what of the Lord? The branch of the Lord. That in that stump is going to be a holy seed, and that holy seed is going to produce a single branch, and that branch is going to produce fruit, and that fruit is going to cover the entire earth. Look all the way back up to Isaiah 6. That's what he's talking about, the glory of the Lord filling the earth. It's going to fill the whole earth, and God promises it. Because if you glance forward to Isaiah chapter 11, this is what we find. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from its roots will bear fruit. And he explains what that fruit is in the conclusion. A few verses later is this, that the earth as a result of the fruitfulness of this shoot coming out of this stump is going to be that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The glory of God is going to be as watery as the sea is watery. There will be no end to it. It will fill everything. And that branch coming from that holy seed is Jesus Christ. Why would God have the audacity to harden a people? The answer is so that he can save a people. And that is good news. That he has hardened these people so that he might be able to save a people. God was finished with Isaiah's generation, but he was not finished with his plan. That through Isaiah's preaching, God is going to harden a nation, but he's going to save a remnant. And in this remnant, God's promises to Adam and to Abraham and to David are going to continue to unfold until they finally and fully find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That is really good news. Especially when the things that God asks us to do seem really difficult to understand. We trust his plan. Handful of applications. What does this have to do with us? Number one, we need to respond appropriately 
to God's holiness. We need to respond appropriately to God's holiness. And this looks like no less than three things. Number one, because God is holy, we must worship God by His rules. God cares not only that He is worshipped, God cares how He is worshipped. We see that in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1, in the example of Nadab and Abihu, when they offer strange fire to God, and God killed them. And we see that, as we just saw in 2 Chronicles 26, with Uzziah. Isaiah, just like Nadab and Abihu, tried to offer incense. And God, in His justice, struck him. God cares not only that he is worshipped, he, he cares how he is worshipped. And he has prescribed it in his word. That is why we look to the Bible, most specifically to the New Testament, as to how it is that when we gather together as a people that we are to worship God. And it's not anything goes. That's why we are committed to reading the Bible, praying the Bible, singing the Bible, preaching the Bible, and seeing the Bible. Because all of those, seeing it, that is, in baptism and the Lord's Supper... Because all of these have clear prescription from God in his word. His word regulates our worship. And we don't go outside of that. God cares not only that he is worshipped, God cares how he is worshipped. And he has not left us without word as to how to do just that. Secondly, because God is holy, we need a desire to be like him. Because God is holy, we must desire to be like him. 1 Peter 1.16, be holy as I am holy. We're not commanded to be omnipotent as God is omnipotent. We're not commanded to be omniscient as God is omniscient. Though in many of our worrying and in our controlling, we wish it were. We are commanded to be holy as God is holy. That is morally pure. Stephen Charnock wrote this, this, that is holiness, is the prime way of honoring God. We don't glorify God so much by elevated admirations, eloquent expressions, or pompous service, but by aspiring to converse with Him in unstained spirits and to live to Him by living like Him. That's why Paul commands in Ephesians 5.1, Therefore, be imitators of God. This has lots of practical implications for our discipleship as a church. This is why our church covenant says that we will, together, by God's grace, flee sinful desires, live carefully in the world, since we have been united to Christ and are now called to lead new and holy lives. Brothers and sisters, I don't have a rebuke to offer I just want to encourage you because I see this happening all over our church. I see brothers and sisters gathering together to study God's word. And this is at the very heart of making disciples. Go therefore make disciples, baptize them and teach them to obey all that I've commanded. So I love walking into any respective coffee shop and seeing a group of believers from this church with Bibles open, encouraging, admonishing and exhorting one another of being committed to small groups and hospitality in the way that you are getting more and more into one another's lives. But we can't graduate from that. And we have not arrived. This is where we need to continue to grow in grace by grace. 
that we continue to build friendships with the goal of doing spiritual good to others, and that those friendships wouldn't look just like us and have our shared interests. One of the graces of having community with people who are unlike you, either in season of life, background, ethnicity, whatever it may be, is that you've got to run really quick to Jesus because you lose earthly common ground pretty quick. And so if I'm a 21-year-old hanging out with a 71-year-old over lunch, we may not have a whole lot earthly in common, but if we've got Christ, we've got everything in common. And that any believer with a Bible can help any other believer, a 71 to a 21-year-old or a 21-year-old to a 71-year-old, any believer with the Bible can, by God's Spirit, help any other believer follow Jesus. And so we are committed as a church because of the command of God to be holy as He is holy to ensuring that every disciple is discipling and that there is no undiscipled disciples. Is that what you're committed to? That is what God has called us to. In Isaiah chapter 6, it's put in the form of a question. Who will go for me? Who will I send? But when we get to the New Testament, the questions have turned into commands and commissions. Just as my Father has sent me, I am sending you. It's not optional. Go and make disciples. Of all nations, everywhere, of all kinds of people, people that aren't like you, they don't like to watch what you watch, listen to you, listen, they don't look like you, not in the same season of life as you, of all people in all nations, everywhere, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things low, I will be with you always. Christ accompanies things that he aims to see succeed. Christ is committed to the discipleship of this church succeeding. Will we avail ourselves of his grace and his presence and commit ourselves to that task? Brothers, continue to grow in grace. Sisters, continue to grow in grace just as you've been doing so far. Thirdly, because God is holy, we must trust God for his grace. When we're confronted with God being holy, 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 we recognize that there is nothing in ourselves that can commend ourselves to God or give us right standing with Him. And if that's true, then that means that, I, that all of our anxieties about whether or not there is anything that we can do to cause God to be committed to us or for the love of Christ to be separated from us, as Mike prayed earlier, that when we consider the holiness of God in light of those anxieties, we're reminded that we are who we are and we have what we have that is blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because God has taken the initiative to be infinitely gracious. That's why we have no boast but Christ. Christ is our whole boast. We've got nothing except Christ. He's all we have. So when God is holy, we have to trust him for his grace. So we need to respond to God's holiness. Second main application, we need to redefine ministry success. We see at the end of Isaiah that only 10% are going to respond positively to Isaiah's message. I imagine that by most church growth metrics and books and conferences today, Isaiah would be an abject failure. But we have to have a category for the word of God not only saving and growing his people, but for the word of God, hardening hearers as well, of responding in hostility to the gospel, 
Jesus promises his disciples, if they hated you, it's because they hated me first. Their hearts have been hardened. And we make sense of that through the lens of Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, just as the New Testament authors did. And so if we are preaching in such a way to where everybody is coming and everybody is hearing and nobody is offended, it may be the case that we are not preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And it may be that the true preaching of the gospel will in any given church for a season not necessarily or automatically grow a church. It may, in fact, shrink a church. And that is to God's glory. He saves who he wills and he hardens who he wills. He grows churches, he shrinks churches, and he kills churches to his glory. And he does all of it according to his plan that he has made from eternity past in himself to fill the earth with his glory. So do we have a category, not only for God saving, but for God hardening? And if that's the case, then we need a whole new way of thinking about ministry success. And that will be very un-American, but it will be faithful. Finally, we need to be satisfied in Jesus. I imagine that there are some of you in here, when you come to passages like Isaiah 6, that you think, well, listen, my Christian life would be so much easier. I could be so much holier. I could be so much more faithful and effective if only I could see and hear what Isaiah saw and heard. God, give me one of those visions. Give me one of those dreams. Give me one of those revelations. But that is a wrong-headed way to think about what Isaiah saw. Put your finger there, and we're going to finish in Matthew 12. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I just want you to see something really important. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 10. Well, I put the wrong cross-reference in my notes. <laughs> Let me just tell you what it says. Jesus is meeting with his disciples, and he's talking about why the parables work the way that they do, hiding the gospel of God from some and revealing it to others. And he says that it has been that I am revealing to you the mysteries of the kingdom of God. This is what John means in John 15, that Jesus makes us his friends, that he brings us to the inner circle, revealing how he is the yes and amen to all of the promises of God. But that's hidden. He's the wisdom of God hidden from ages. And then he tells them that you have come to know things that the prophets have longed to see. We look at Isaiah and think, if only I could see what Isaiah saw. Isaiah would look at us and go, if only I could see what they see. We have greater revelation in Christ. In the fulfillment of the wisdom of God through the ages, being revealed in him, of him speaking to us in these final days in his son, we have greater revelation in the incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ 
than Isaiah had in his conversion moment. Isaiah longed to know what you know about Jesus. Where do we get get off longing to have what Isaiah had? We've got something better. We've got the Son of God revealed in the Word of God. And the truth of Him has been illumined to us by the Spirit of God. So that we might be saved by the grace of God. And be brought into the glory of God as it fills the earth. And every tribe, tongue, and nation. Brothers and sisters, you have everything that you need revealed in Christ in His Word. You don't need more revelation. You don't need dreams or visions like Isaiah. Because in these final days, God has spoken to us in his son. You have something better. Look to and treasure and be satisfied in Jesus.